Christmas, everyone, and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. Uh, I was a little startled when you started the episode off with Merry Christmas, because for us it's Christmas Eve, but for everyone else, Christmas was last week. Well, for everyone else, Christmas was two days ago. Still. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, I mean, this is as close to... A Christmas a, episode? A Christmas episode is we're going to get, so I thought I'd just start the just start the show off right. Lean into it? Yeah, absolutely. Nice. Yeah. So as Sarah said, we're recording this Christmas Eve, and somehow, come heck or high water, we're going to get it edited over Christmas Day and Boxing Day and have it up uh, for the Wednesday upload. So if it's Christmas Eve, what are we? What horror movie are we watching? The next one chronologically on the list. <laughs> uh, today we are watching Night of Terror from 1933. I guess for naughty children, it's thematic. Right. Yes. I suppose if you have been bad, Christmas Eve could be considered a Night of Terror. Yeah. Uh, so Night of Terror is our first film on the podcast from Columbia Pictures. Okay. Uh, so Columbia Pictures was founded in 1918 as Cone Brandt Cone Film Sales, or CBC. That's funny. <laughs> uh, by brothers Jack and Harry Cone and their friend Joe Brandt. The Cones were working class Jewish New Yorkers who actually worked at Universal Studios before leaving to found their own studio. CBC was a Poverty Row studio, uh, with Jack Cohn handling marketing, sales, and distribution from New York, while Harry Cohn ran production out of Hollywood. The studio had a lousy reputation in Hollywood, both for cheapness, but also for nepotism. Mm. Uh, it earned the derisive nickname of the Pine Tree Studio because it employed, quote, so many cones, unquote. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> Seeking to improve the studio's reputation, the Cone Brothers renamed it to the Columbia Pictures Corporation in 1924. The studio largely stuck to mid-budget features and crowd-pleasing short subjects, Like Universal and United Artists, Columbia controlled production and distribution, but didn't own their own theater chain, which put it above the Poverty Row studios, but below the top-tier major studios. Uh, Columbia's fortunes would begin to rise in the latter half of 1933, and especially in 1934, thanks to the efforts of a young director named Frank Capra. But at the time Night of Terror was made, the studio was still best known for cheap B-movies, which is exactly what Night of Terror is. (laughs) I mean, it sounds like that's what we're signing up for. Mm -hmm. There's no pretense. Yeah. What changed in 34? Uh, So Frank Capra, the director I mentioned, made a movie called It Happened One Night which won Best Picture and, like, nine other Oscars that okay. year. Okay. And Frank Capra, his whole career was, like, one big successful hit after another. You know, most people know him today for It's a Wonderful Life, which came out much later, but he was a very successful director. Benjamin Stoloff was the 
person chosen to direct this movie. Uh, a veteran feature filmmaker since 1924. Uh, Stoloff was basically a worker. He never really produced anything significant, but he worked steadily in the industry uh, up to his death in 1960. So, you know, was just kind of always there doing stuff. Nothing wrong with that. That's actually cool to see, especially because this is the Great Depression, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, it's good to have work. Yeah. The cast is largely made up of the kind of minor figures you'd expect from a low-budget production. The lead actress is Sally Blame, who's actually the older sister of Loretta Young, who was um, quite a bit more famous. And we also see the return of Wallace Ford in the cast, uh, who we last saw as Frozo in Freaks. Uh, and he has made seven films in the interim, of course, since then. But of course, the big name in the cast is Bella Lugosi, mm. who returns here to the horror genre. The last time we saw Bella was in Island of Lost Souls, where he was struggling with bankruptcy, but hoping an appearance in a major studio picture would help bolster his career. Instead, Island of Lost Souls had resulted in mixed critical response, censorship, and audience backlash. So afterwards, Lugosi found himself acting in The Whispering Shadow, a 12-part serial for Poverty Row Studio Mascot Pictures. I've never heard of Mascot Pictures. Yep. Oh no. Uh, in the serial, Lugosi played the fake-out red herring for the identity of the mystery villain, The Whispering Shadow. Mm. However, Mascot paid Lugosi $10,000, which is the highest salary he ever earned in his career for his appearance in the serial. Is that like per episode or a total? In total. Yeah, for the whole thing. However, uh, even that was not enough to help Lugosi's financial situation. He was still in debt when he agreed to appear in Night of Terror for Columbia, and so accepted a role in the Paramount Pictures comedy International House as well, which was shooting at the same time as Night of Terror. Okay. So How did he, he manage that? Uh, so he... Um, would shoot his scenes for International House, which was directed by Murders in the Zoo director Edward Sutherland. He would shoot those scenes in the day, and then his Night of Terror scenes he would shoot at night, which exhausted the actor with near 24-hour workdays for the duration of shooting these two movies. And he's not a young guy at this point. No. I would say, like, old, like, slightly past middle age, right? Yeah, he is uh, about 50 mm. at this point. So it's, you know, really tough on him to be doing, like, 24-hour workdays shooting two movies for, you know, the extended period that it takes to shoot uh, a feature film. I'm 27 and would not be able to do that. Yeah. I mean, he really sort of, you know, Archie andrews himself with, <laughs> uh, you know, two dates at the same time, as it were. Yeah. Night of Terror used Lugosi in what was to become a common ploy for these low-budget productions, which was hiring him for an inexpensive, small role in the film, uh, but then using his name and face on all the posters and the marketing for the perceived star publicity value he still brought to these uh, features. Isn't it a thing in, like, current movies that, like... 
I don't know if this counts for like publicity for whatever the project is, but people have to pay you to use your likeness. Yes, that is a thing now. But not then. No. Does that count for publicity in either... Generally speaking, for, like, publicity for the movie itself, I think, you know, the situation is is that's part of the deal of making the movie, right? Like, unless you say, I don't want to be credited or I don't want you to say I'm in this movie or something like that, right? Mm. Where being paid for likenesses really comes into play is, you know, after you've made the movie and they want to stick your face on a bunch of, like... Cereal boxes Mm. to promote it kind of thing, right? Yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, at at this time, like, you know, if you could get Lugosi for a small role, you wouldn't have to pay him as much, because that's less days that you're paying a day rate out. But the public wasn't as aware of Lugosi's, like, fall from grace uh, in Hollywood. Mm. And so you could still plaster his name on everything. And, you know, it's a horror movie, so it's like, oh... To the public, a horror movie with Bela Lugosi, like, implied some pedigree. hmm The film was released on April 24th, 1933, and went largely unnoticed by critics at the time. Uh, it didn't make much of an impression at the box office either. Since then, the film has slipped into the public domain, uh, and it has never received much attention on home video either. Uh, so we will be watching it on YouTube... And you can find it on the Scream Scene playlist. Nice. It's been a while since we've had a new edition there. Mm-hmm. If you would like to see this playlist, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com, and uh, there's a little page there that says the films, and you can find it right there. I guess until then, uh, you'll hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching Night of Terror! <laughs> see you on the other side, everybody. Back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Night of Terror from 1933, and um, I think it was more of a a night of boredom. Weekend of Terror. There was like two nights in this movie. They probably were separated by like the period, a period of at least a week, even. Yeah. The yeah. title's highly inaccurate. Both in terms of night and of terror. Yes. Um, like fortnight of monotony. Yeah. <laughs> is a good title. Yeah, <laughs> but it's not as catchy, I suppose. No, no one's going to come to see Fortnite of Monotony. Yeah, no one came to see Night of Terror. No! So why don't we start with the plot? Sure. And work our way from there. So there's a maniac on the loose. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's out murdering people outside of town and near the Reinhardt mansion. He's called the maniac. No catchy you know, name, like the bat or whatever. Uh, So this Reinhardt mansion is where this professor named Arthur Hornsby is working on an experiment, uh, and he's the nephew of Richard Reinhardt and fiancé to Mary Reinhardt, who happens to be two-timing him with reporter Tom Hartley. Although, like, it's unclear how consensually 
she is two-timing him with Tom Hartley. Yes, that is, that is fair. That kind of gives you, listener, an idea as to how many people are in this movie when it does not need to be like this. Mm-hmm. Arthur is working on this experiment where he'll inject himself with this serum, be buried alive for eight hours, and then after eight hours, uh, they'll inject another serum into him and he'll be fine. He how many hours? Dead. Eight hours. So, eight, eight what? Eight hours. So we'll, 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 we'll bring him back after how long? Eight hours. Okay. Yeah, the movie, with many facts that you don't really need to know, repeats them over and over, such as, there's a maniac on the loose. What was that? Oh, there's a guy murdering people? I was reading the paper the other day. Did you see this? What's in the paper? No, what's in the paper? There's a maniac on the loose. There's a maniac on the loose. What was that you just said? There's a maniac on the loose. My lord. Wow. There's nothing to be scared about. It's not like there's a maniac on the loose. In fact, there is. Oh my god. Oh, it's, oh, monotony. Anyways. Yeah, for sure. Um, so that kind of sets things up where, like, Arthur's making this experiment. Richard, his uncle, is, like, super curious about it, but Arthur's trying to be, like, all secretive for no real reason. Um, and then, of course, the servants to the Reinhardts are Dagar, played by Bella Lugosi, and Sika, who are two ethnic people? Yeah, they are, uh, Degar wears a turban. That's about as specific as we get, which puts them from the east, basically. Yeah. Like, they but could because, be... because, like, Sika's doing, like, like, getting these visions, doing meditations, and doing seances. I wasn't sure. And a little they're, bit with her dress as well. They're I wasn't mystics. sure what they were trying to they're do. They're from the mystic east. They're just ambiguously, mystically eastern. Yeah. And that's as specific as it gets. They are also definitely two white people playing two ethnic people. Yeah. I mean, Lugosi is from the east. Yeah, but Hungaria and, you know, like India. Hungaria? Oh dear. Definitely two very different places. For sure, for sure. And throughout the movie, Dagar is, mainly because he's played by Bela Lugosi, is hinted to be the bad guy, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever. He looks suspicious. One night, uh, Richard Reinhardt sneaks into the laboratory to kind of look at his nephew's formula. And by this point, like, we've seen the maniac go and kill people. Uh, he kind of looks like a hobo, basically. And, and we see him, like, kind of sneak into the house, so we know he's in the area. But when Richard goes to look at this formula, he gets murdered um, in a bit more of a mysterious way, where we see, like, a gloved hand and stuff. But his murder is still attributed to the maniac. Largely because the maniac has, like, this thing where he leaves behind, like, strips of newspaper yeah. with his victim, and there's strips of newspaper with uh, Richard Reinhardt, so everyone's like, cool, it's the maniac. Yeah. So fast forward what's, I think they say, is a week or something. Well, it's it's mainly just what however long it took for Richard Reinhardt's will to be read and, like, settled. And, of course, for some other relatives to show up. And this is about halfway through the movie that we're introducing even more characters. Sarah Reinhardt and John Reinhardt. Yes, because this movie about a maniac on the loose and a bizarre science experiment and a murder mystery just became a Cat in the Canary ripoff halfway through now that we've got a will and inheritance to deal with. 
So, like, it's not so much in the same way as, like, the cat and the canary where, you know, it's all going to this one person unless she turns out to be crazy. In this case, between John, Sarah, Arthur, Mary, as well as Dagar, Sika, and Martin, the chauffeur, the inheritance has been split equally. Sarah and John are not very happy about that. They are not very nice people. And John seems to come up with the idea of, like, Dagar will kill everyone else mysteriously, so more percentage of the inheritance goes to the remaining people. Yeah, they... He says it in a way that's clearly like, this is my idea, but I'm going to cast suspicion on Dagar. Yeah, they, they immediately are like, oh, these... Uh, servants are going to kill us for the money, you can't trust them, uh, with their only real rationale for why you can't trust them basically being that they're non-white. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This also happens to be the night that Arthur is doing his experiment, where he's invited uh, some professors whose names I'm not even going to go over. Uh, they, he's invited these professors over to the mansion to witness the experiment, but otherwise it's very hush-hush with him being buried alive, whatever. John seems like he wants to sabotage this experiment so that more inheritance will go to him. Um, But John is mysteriously murdered, and uh, again, it's uh, unclear as to who did it, but it is attributed again to the maniac. (laughs) Throughout this entire time, we see the maniac doing more murders and sneaking around, so we know that he's active in somewhere. But anyways, this movie just goes on and on. But the police show up and they put every, like, all of our main cast into the dining room as they search the house and search the grounds. Mary comes up with this great idea for Sika to do a seance to contact her father's ghost to learn the identity of the murderer. So we're doing a seance. And just as Sika is about to be like, it was named, yeah. she gets stabbed in the back and no one knows who did it. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yada, yada, yada. It's probably worth pointing out that Tom Hartley is is here in the house by this point because he's a reporter, so he's like here because like what a scoop and stuff. But he's also here so that he can like non consensually force himself on Mary at any given opportunity. Yes. Eventually, uh, Mary gets kidnapped by this mysterious figure who has like the dark gloves, who we identify as the person who has been murdering the Reinhardts. Yes. So she gets kidnapped and taken down some secret passages and hidden. To the basement. Yes. Just as she's hidden and the mysterious figure runs down another corridor, the maniac pops out of a barrel <laughs> and goes to kidnap Mary just as Tom and Dagar come down because they heard her screaming. They just, like, straight up shoot the maniac. He goes down. Yeah, Tom just opens the door, fires a gun at the first person he sees. Yeah. And it's like, well... <laughs> what a story. What a scoop. Uh, so as Tom takes Mary back upstairs, Dagar notices an open passageway, so he follows it. Cut to the police outside having dug up the grave because they're like, what do you mean you've buried someone alive? What the fuck? Mm -hmm. They open up the grave and no one's in it. Just then, Dagar comes forward with the mysterious man who turns out to be Arthur. And Dagar explains that it's been Arthur doing the murdering. He murdered Richard for uh, suspecting that his serum was fake and was murdering other people in the Reinhardt family to get a larger portion of the inheritance. Mm -hmm. Uh, The end. Yeah, and with Arthur revealed to be the murderer, Tom and Mary are now presumably free to be romantic interests with each other. Yes. Yeah. 
But at least this doesn't end with like, no, we can get married. Sure. Like it's it's Inst- very much like Arthur's going to jail. Instead, how does it end, Sarah? Um, the maniac gets up from where he had been shot and was bleeding out, stands up and starts uh, pointing to people in the audience and then directly into the camera, saying that if you tell anyone the ending of this story, I will rip you limb from limb uh, in a very um, bat whispers way. And it was just like, okay, can this movie please be done, please? But that, that, there's the synopsis. This movie's an hour long. It, like, I feel like I need to stress that because, like, it's amazing how much and yet how little happens in this movie. Like, there's constantly bullshit going on, but, like, so much of it doesn't matter, you know? Someone will make a joke. Like, Martin makes a joke about, like, if I see the maniac, uh, I'll be the first man to fly because mm-hmm. I'll just get so scared. Mm-hmm. And Mary repeats it, like, once or twice <laughs> to other people, like... Two minutes after we, the audience, ha- ha- saw Martin make the joke. Yeah, Why? Like, like, even with the one-hour runtime being as short as it is, it's a movie that still feels, like, extremely padded. There's a lot of unnecessary scenes yeah. of just people having small talk. There's a lot of redundant dialogue of people repeating the same plot points over and over again. And everybody talks to one another in exposition... <laughs> like, people come into rooms and say, like, Ah, hello, my nephew, Arthur Hormsby. As you know, I, your uncle, Richard Reinhardt, was at your conference earlier this morning, where, as you know, you explained your theory to the rest of the Academy. That's how people talk in this movie. They, they're constantly explaining who they are and who the person they are talking to is to the person they're talking to and, like, going over events that both of them were present for kind of thing. And, like, the worst case is when the audience was there for those same events, too. Yes. That were doing the exposition as if the writer knew that people would have fallen asleep. Or the- <laughs> Yeah, or that people were going to be coming and going, right? Yeah. Like, like just like, hey, honey, I'm I'm going to the lobby for some popcorn. You want anything? Like, I'll be back. Like, <laughs> hey, what did I miss? Nothing. Cool. Like, yeah. This movie, as you said, is a rip on the the cat and the canary formula, and I'm so tired of this formula already. <laughs> like, I feel like Old Dark House, you know, did such a good job of pushing it forward in a new way. That to see these kind of, like, regressive steps back, like, I don't care, right? I think even if we had seen this movie before seeing The Old Dark House, Mm. we would have found it derivative. Mm -hmm. Well, and, like, because it's not just that it's um, derivative of the good instances of this formula, like Cat and the Canary or The Bat. But it's even derivative of bad ones, like The Monster Walks. Yeah. Like, The Monster Walks was a bad movie, but that's where we get the, like, shady foreigner servants element. Yeah. Um, is from that movie, just with the twist in this one being that they aren't actually evil. Yeah. Like, that's the, the one clever thing that you can maybe give this movie is that it's playing on the audience expectation that Bela Lugosi will be the villain, and he's not. Mm-hmm. That's... Kind of the one new idea. That and, like, the weird buried alive experiment, but, like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I I did appreciate that Bella got to, I guess, be the hero mm-hmm. a bit um, in, in the genre that he's known 
for mm-hmm. it. Because, like, you can be a hero outside the genre. I haven't really seen him in anything other than horror movies. Um, but it, that was a, a cool thing to see. It's one of those things where maybe an audience of the time, you know, would have suspected Bella, and then it's a nice twist. I feel like from a modern standpoint, you almost know that Bella's not the killer because he's too obvious. Yeah. I will say that I did like... I didn't like a lot of things in this movie. Yeah. Straight up, didn't like a lot of things in this movie. But I did like uh, the scene where Bella's explaining how Arthur pulled off everything, and we actually see it. We have Bella as, like, a voiceover over footage of, like, actually showing Arthur do it, and it's, like, this moving camera tracking shot from, like, his grave to, like, a tunnel that he dug to, like, into the basement and then through these, like, secret passages and stuff. That's, like, the only moment of the movie where I was like, oh, this is some competent filmmaking. Maybe the beginning, too, because um, when we're hearing about, oh, the murderer... uh oh, the maniac, he's killed 12 people. We keep cutting to different cases of people reading the newspapers or gossiping about it, and it's a continual narrative uh, in a way that Shaun of the Dead riffs off of. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I'd forgotten actually about that opening, but you're right. (laughs) Because you have to get um, through so much. Yeah, it's like everyone's telling this story, it's one continual sentence, but it keeps cutting between different people, showing that, like, everyone's kind of talking about it. Um, I actually, when we were watching it, pointed out that it was really similar to uh, M, mm-hmm. the the Fritz Slang movie from 1931. I think that movie has very similar kind of dialogue overlaps in it. I'll also say about that opening that it's probably the one place, you know, this is a very derivative movie, as we sort of keep saying, that opening's probably the one place I can give Night of Terror points for innovation because the very first scene, the very opening of the movie, is the maniac attacking and murdering <laughs> two teenagers making out in a convertible at night. Yes. And, like, that, of course, goes on to be, like, a stalwart horror movie trope for decades. Yes. But this appears to be its first appearance. Like, this is the first time we're seeing it. Yeah. So, if there's one thing to consign <laughs> Night of Terror to the history books for, it's that it appears to have invented the serial killer in the woods. Attacking killing, teenagers. Attacking teenagers who are making out in a convertible. Like, that yeah. exact scene. And plus side, if you want to see this movie for that part, like, for for this milestone... You can bail out early. Yeah, you, it's, it's like the first five minutes. You're good. You, we just saved you 55 minutes of your life. You know, we've been saying the movie's derivative. We've been saying it's boring. We've been saying we didn't like it. But really, to add insult to injury, it's also, like, supremely racist. Yes. Very misogynist. Mm -hmm. And just kind of filled with unfunny jokes at the expense of the movie's non-white or female characters. You know, as we already said, Bela Lugosi and Mary Frey are two white actors who are playing the ambiguously Middle Eastern uh, Dagar and Sika. Oscar Smith plays Martin the Chauffeur, who Sarah really only briefly mentioned. He's in a lot of the movie, despite that brief mention in the plot. Um, He is uh, an African-American character. He's at least played by an African-American actor. That's, Mm -hmm. you know, small victories. Uh, But his character is a broad caricature. He's cowardly, he's stuttering, he's uneducated, you know, he's, he's the, yes boss, yes boss, like, he's that black servant character, and it's real bad. It is. 
And then you've got Mary Reinhardt, our female lead, who basically does nothing in this movie except scream at everything. And get uh, groped by Tom. Yeah, she's the target for repeated sexual harassment from our ostensible hero, really, yeah. Tom Hartley. Like, I guess so, because he shoots the maniac. Yeah, if you, if you look at the structure of this movie, Tom Hartley's the romantic hero, right? Mm-hmm. And yet, like, he's awful. He breaks into her house, he kisses her without consent, like, repeatedly, like, lunges in and kisses her, and she's, like, clearly not happy about it. Uh, he basically ignores every no that he gets from her, and she's constantly telling him no. She's always reminding him that she's engaged to Arthur Hornsby, and that does not phase Tom at all. He just keeps coming at her. And this really, if you, you know, know movies of this period, this is kind of your first clue that Hornsby's the murderer. Yeah. Because you you know that, like, oh, they're going to do that, you know, 1930s movie trope where these two hate each other and then they end up together. And, like, Wallace Ford is, you know, one of the only notable actors in the movie. Like, he's the, the top-billed male actor after Bela Lugosi. So, like, they, they're going to have to get Hornsby out of the way here for this... Yeah for this to take place, and so, like, that's, you know, the wheels start turning. You can kind of figure it out from there. Whether Arthur is the murderer or gets murdered, you know he's not coming out by the end. Yeah, exactly. Every scene with Wallace Ford as Hartley is, like, an ordeal to get through because this movie portrays this, like, disgusting, self-centered slime ball as a romantic hero. So you're having to sit through all these scenes, and, like, all he cares about is, like, getting a scoop and getting a story and getting this girl. Everything else doesn't matter. It's like the people making this movie saw the success Warner Brothers was having with these hard-boiled detectives and reporters and didn't realize what kind of makes them liked by audiences. Mm -hmm. Like why, even just looking at Mystery of the Wax Museum, they don't seem to understand why we like Glenda Farrell's performance mm-hmm. in that, right? They're like, oh, it's just a reporter out for a story. Like, another case of being derivative, really. Exactly. And I mean, like, a lot of 1930s, 40s, heck, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s <laughs> uh, Hollywood movies have this trope of kind of, like, the the female lead and the male lead who don't get along and don't like each other, and then eventually they fall in love anyways. Like, that's every Harrison Ford movie, right? Yeah. But there's, like, this spectrum of, like, doing that and having it be charming, and then you kind of cross a line into doing that, and it's, like, a little... a little questionable. Yeah. You're a little, like, mmm... But, like, you kind of are, like, well, it's an old movie, and you kind of, you know, (laughs) forgive certain things. And then there's, like, another line that you cross again, and you're, like, no, this guy's just kind of a rapist. And that's, like, the line that this movie crossed. Like, this movie's past, like, uncomfortable to watch those scenes where you're like, oh, this might be problematic. And full-on into, like, a woman, like, telling a man, like, no, I don't want to see you, I don't like you, I hate you, I'm engaged, please leave me alone. And this guy just, like, grabbing her and kissing her and groping her. And then, like, the movie telling us, like, this guy's, like, a charming scoundrel. Yeah. You know, it's like... It's it's not good. So like and that on top of like how racist this movie is and then how derivative it is and then how boring it is. You know, there are movies out there that have problematic elements, but like you'll hear people defend them because like oh, but it's a classic or oh, it has these things to recommend it. And this movie doesn't have any of that. It has no. nothing going for it to make it worth sitting through all the crappy garbage. 
yeah, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head. Like, you, yeah, totally with you. There's no reason for anyone to watch this movie. Everything in it is done better somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And probably with less racism and misogyny and jokes that are funny. <laughs> Besides that first five minutes of the teens in the mm-hmm. car. Yeah. Yeah, like, the first five minutes of this are like, oh, cool, here's where this trope comes from. Mm-hmm. And then, like, bail out there. As you said, even the ending with the maniac turning to camera is derivative. The thing about that moment in the movie is, like, it's the only dialogue the maniac gets in the whole movie, too. Like, he just rustles around in the bushes in the background Yeah. for the rest of it. And you can kind of see why it's the only dialogue he gets, because he's not good in it. You know, it's the last thing in the movie, and you're just you're just waiting for this movie to be over. <laughs> and it ends up like, I get the feeling like they just put him in front of the camera and had him ad-lib that whole speech, because the bit just kind of goes on a little too long. Yeah. Um, so it's just like one last bit of torture at the end. <laughs> it's kind of funny how um, the last movie we watched felt like... A movie that was introduced by Vampirella. It was the so bad it's good. Right. This was a so bad it's bad. Put it in front of Mystery Science Science Theater Theater. 3000. Yeah. Like, even I couldn't help myself by, like, yelling things at the screen because I just... There's no other way to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. This is... (laughs) Exactly. There's... It's hard to articulate what the difference is, but you're, you're totally right about... The difference between the kind of movie you're going to watch on, like, a late-night horror show um, and the kind of movie that should be on Mystery Science Theater. Like, yeah. there's, it's a, it's a slim difference, but it's, it's there for sure. Yeah. Do you, do you want to try to rank this? Yeah, I think, I think it goes on the list because this movie's ineffective, but it's, you know, we aren't ranking based on how effective it is. It's it's based on intent. This movie's still playing clearly in the same genre. For sure. As all this other stuff on our list. It's just bad at it. Yeah. I guess what I meant by try was, uh, just how low can it go? I think it can go pretty low, Sarah. Yeah. What's your range for Night of Terror? Well, uh, I was looking right at uh, where Monster Walks mm-hmm. is at number 39. Mm-hmm. Um, right above that is the monster. I feel like this is slightly worse than the monster because the monster at least had like Lon Chaney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it had and it had some funny gags here and there. Yeah, I feel like this should go above the monster walks. If it goes below the monster walks, it would put it right above the 1913 Jekyll and Hyde. Why do you feel it goes above the monster walks? I think because of the opening scene of the teens getting murdered. I mean, it's not like we see them get murdered, but yeah. like whatever. And also with the I'll say twist of uh, Bella Lugosi getting to kind of be the hero at the end mm. of the day, like capturing the murderer. Whereas the monster walks, it's kind of like, yeah, you know who it is the whole way through. Yeah. They were trying to do like family secrets kind of thing, but not well at all. They were both boring. The like they're fairly equal, but because of this movie having the teens die and Bella Lugosi kind of get to do something other than just... Yeah, yeah, like the monster walks, um, the foreigner servant who you, who is shady, who you suspect is in fact the bad guy. Yeah. And here they, they double back on that and twist it. That's a pretty good reason for putting it above monster walks. Um, I wanted to just put this straight at the bottom. Below wolf blood? 
Yeah, because this movie was more racist than Wolf Blood. Uh, and, like, I didn't have to sit through, like, attempted rape scenes done by our hero in Wolf Blood. Sure. This was more unpleasant to watch than Wolf Blood for me. But I do think that your rationale for why it maybe should go above the monster walks makes sense, because it is a very similar movie, other than that one point. Of course, this movie had the Buried Alive experiment, and the monster walks had the ape yeah, doing so, experiments with the ape to learn about evolution. Yeah, which was pretty bad. Yeah. So... Like, they're both bad, but I feel like... So this... maybe this does go above the monster walks. And we do tend to reward movies that try to do something new or subvert something or whatever, and I think this movie does try to do that, even with a bait-and-switch type deal with Dagar's character. Okay. <sighs> All right, I think that's reasonable. I think you've talked me up. I, I definitely, like, I was just like, nope, straight to the bottom of the list. <laughs> like, I was, like, I would rather watch all those, like, goofy little George Melies shorts again than watch this movie again. But I think you make a good point. Okay, cool. <sighs> so, coming in at number 39 on our list, which now has 47 entries on it. Wow. Is Night of Terror from 1933, directed by Benjamin Stoloff. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There are on the list links to the other films, so you can hear what we had to say about these other uh, films like Old Dark House or The Monster Walks. On our website, there is a submission box if you would like to send in an appeal, any questions or concerns or any uh, thoughts you might have had. Feel free to also email us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Screamscene updates every Wednesday on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can also get the podcast through the RSS feed on whatever your favorite podcasting app may be. If you'd like to leave a review on iTunes, it helps out with people trying to find the show because it helps increase the show's visibility. Or you can comment on SoundCloud... Another way that you can help the show is just by telling people about it. We're through with 2017. Uh, When we come back to see you again, it'll be 2018. And uh, we're really excited for the listenership to grow even more in the second year of the show. Are we still in 1933? Uh, We will be in 1933 for uh, quite a, uh, a little while longer, for the next two or three weeks. Okay. What are we watching next week? Well, I really wanted us to be able to watch La Llorona, which is the first Mexican sound horror film based on the Mexican legend of the crying woman. Um, Oh, cool. But I have been unable to find a version with English subtitles. Oh. Um, And it's really not fair to the film for us to just kind of watch it visually and try to guess at what's going on or something. For sure. Um... So, unless I'm able to find those subtitles in the next week or so, we're going to have to skip La Llorona. Uh, In which case, we will be watching The Ghoul, our first British-made horror film starring Boris Karloff. Cool. Looking forward to it. Well, until next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye. Bye.